Uh, we're in Exodus chapter 20. As I said, we've been in a series on the Ten Commandments, and um, uh, so we've, we've kind of camped here for several weeks, and this is, this is uh, where we're going to be for a, a few more weeks. But let's read um, what we have learned so far and add a little bit to it for today. Beginning in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not make, you shall not take rather the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So here we are on a journey through the Ten Commandments. And we have come past the halfway point uh, at this, at this uh, juncture. And um, uh, we've come to the Sixth Commandment, which says, You shall not murder. The first four commandments, we've mentioned this a few times. You shall not or you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images for yourself to worship. You shall not carry the name of the Lord in vain and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. All of those dealt with how we are to relate as human beings to God. And the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, as Tom Hall mentioned so eloquently last week. Did you guys enjoy that, having Tom here last week? When, uh, he mentioned that that's a transitional commandment, that it has implications both for the way we relate to God and the way we relate to others. But the sixth commandment is taking a noticeable turn in the commandments, and it's, it's the first one that clearly addresses how we are to relate to other human beings. And it makes a lot of logical sense that this commandment would be the first in line of the remaining five commandments governing our relationships with others because humanity i don't know if you've noticed this but humanity doesn't always agree on a whole lot would you agree with that statement we we don't come to a lot of the same conclusions but most of us have a deeply ingrained sense that to take the life of another is an incredible injustice and it's among humanity's highest crimes to, to snuff out someone else's life. For example, most of us has shuddered over the last kind of several years as we've seen this increase. 
these, these stories in the news about mass shootings. I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but just so far in 2019 in the United States, over 162 people, 100, more than are in this room right now, 162 people have been killed and an additional 560 have been injured in the United States in mass shootings, Sem- senseless crimes. And the worst of these, you'll recall, happened in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and 13 people that day lost their lives and their loved ones were thrust into this incredible season of years-long grieving. I don't know how you recover from something like that. People kill for all kinds of reasons. You've heard them all. Greed, jealousy, anger, lust, political differences, you name it. Although the smallest fraction, the tiniest little fraction, may somehow be looked at by society as justifiable homicides, society rarely looks favorably on the taking of another's life. To be able to wantonly kill any other human being, you have to come to a few conclusions. You have to be able to deny that life is a gift. You have to be able to to disregard the fact that life is an amazing miracle. Yet, what I want you to understand today, because all of us, without exception, are deeply twisted, affected, bent out of shape by sin and the nature of sin that exists in us, somehow we can occasionally, as a society, as a culture, as a world, occasionally justify even the most heinous acts of killing. For example... Every generation has known its despots who mow down the innocent and those who dissent against them because those people are standing in the way of their religious or political ideals or goals. For example, you guys know of this story probably, at least in some level, in the 20th century in China, Mao Zedong's regime was responsible for the deaths of 45 million people. 45 million people died under the beginning of the regime of Mao Zedong. And that happened, you may not know this, in a period of just five years, from 1958 to 1962. And the, 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 the irony of this is he called his communist revolution in China, he called it the Great Leap Forward. Since 1980, another example, almost one billion, with a B, 1.6 billion of the world's unborn children have been murdered while still in the womb through abortion. This year, in the United States alone, I mean this year starting January 1st, 2019, this year in the United States, more than 22,000 babies have been killed in late-term abortions, which means they were performed after 16 weeks of gestation. The church cannot afford to be silent or unsure on this point. Abortion is the greatest moral evil that we face in the world at this point. Why would I say that? Because it snuffs out the lives of those who are truly innocent and have absolutely no voice. It's not, listen to me, some of you may be getting a little... A little prickly at this point, but this is not 
a political issue. This is absolutely not a political issue. This is not an issue on which reasonable people can agree to disagree. This issue has deep gospel implications for those of us who love Jesus Christ. To support abortion on demand is to be on the wrong side of morality, on the wrong side of science, and on the wrong side of history. And if that is you, if you're sitting there thinking I'm nuts, that I'm wrong, with whatever argument you might propose, I hope that you will take a really hard look at what happens to a living child when a pregnancy is terminated. It is horrific. Let me say this too. And I say it with great gravity, sincerity, and grief. If you're a person here, and I wouldn't know that, that in some way or another has experienced the trauma and the loss of abortion, I want to say that we care about you. Very, very deeply we care about you. And I want to tell you that you can ignore it, you can wrestle with it, But the pain that is a holdover that you may try to silence, the only place of healing for you, the only place of forgiveness for you is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And if this church, if Northridge Life Church and this pastor can help you in any way, we're here for you. That's what I want to say. So let me ask you this. It may seem obvious, but I really want to explore it with you this morning. Why is God so opposed to murder? Like me, you've probably met some people that you would not be so opposed to murdering. But God, on the other hand, is is fully opposed to murder. First, the first reason I want you to understand that God's opposed to murder is because he alone reserves the right to be both the sole giver and taker of life. That's his domain alone. It's he alone who determines the lengths of our days. He said this clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. He says this, he says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. Now watch. I kill and I make alive. Some of you might be disturbed to uh, see God saying, I kill. But what he's saying is, I am the determiner of the length of your days. No, Take all the vitamins you want. Jesus is the one who determines your days. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that deliver out of my hand. You are not going to talk Jesus out of it. It's not within our right. Think about this. Some of you have experienced this this issue. It's not even within our right or power to determine when a life begins. Ask the couples that have tried for years to have a baby. It's frustrating. You have no say in that matter. Yeah, I mean, you can do all kinds of things to increase your likelihood, but you ain't getting pregnant till Jesus says you're getting pregnant. God grants life by his own designs, by his perfect will. But it's also not within the government of any individual given by God to, to humanity as, as individuals 
to determine when a life should end. And this includes abortion. It includes euthanasia. It includes genocide. It includes murder. Notable exception to this, a, a, a tricky exception, is the area of capital punishment. God has sovereignly given human governments the right to give a sentence of death in certain cases, not, not randomly, but in certain cases as a punishment for the violation of his just order. And it may interest you to see that this is granted in both the Old and the New Testament. After the flood, God addressed the violence. If you remember before the flood, the Bible just describes a world that had gone completely awry. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, filled with violence, starting with the time that Cain killed his brother Abel. And after the flood, God addresses that violence. It had become so epidemic in humanity and that it caused him to flood the earth in the first place. And even before the Mosaic law was given that we've been studying here in Exodus 20, even before that point, he gave humanity the judicial right to deal with that violence. And this is what he says. This is straight out of the mouth of God himself. Genesis 9, 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. This is God speaking. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Throughout the Mosaic Law, which we're studying, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this responsibility to, to maintain order, sometimes through the use of capital punishment, is placed on leaders and communities at large for specific violations. But even in the New Testament, this is what I was saying, even in the New Testament, Paul says, Romans 13, that we are to respect the, the authority that he has given to government uh, because God, this is Paul's words, I'm going to read them for you. God has granted that government the sword. Now let's read what he said. This is Romans 13. He's just been telling them in the first couple of verses of this chapter to obey the governments established. And he says this, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now watch. For he is God's servant. He's talking about government rulers there, authorities, the police, the, the, you know, the, the, the authorities above us. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. It's what the Bible says. Not making this up. Be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He, the ruler, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Pretty severe, huh? Paul actually, I, want you, I don't want you to miss this. Paul actually says that governments bear the sword as God's servant. Now, while he doesn't specifically mention capital punishment in here, let's use a little common sense. Let me remind you that swords are not generally used for tickle fights. Fair enough? Swords are instruments of destruction. 
God has made rulers, uh, I want you to think about the implications of this. God has made rulers an extension of his sovereignty over the lives of the wicked. This extends to the military as well. When a nation becomes as unjust as Germany in World War II, God raises up other nations to dole out his justice. This is not at all, now listen to me carefully, this is not at all to imply that governments can't be cruel or unjust. Because I'm telling you, they often are. And when they are, they themselves must be dealt with by voters, by authorities, by regulating uh, uh, institutions. They must be dealt with. But that does not change the fact that God has raised them up as his chosen vessels to administer justice. They're an intentional extension of his sovereign rule over all humanity. And that's not always real popular in a, in a part of the country where we're not too fond of the government, right? Y'all are wanting to say it. Go ahead and say amen to that. <laughs> but what I want you to also see is this role of authority has not, carefully note this, has not been given to individuals. Let that sink in. This role of authority over the lives of others has not been given to individuals, hadn't been even given to the family or even to the church. It's the exclusive domain of government. And this is why a just nation never accepts vigilante justice as a substitute. Never. We won't do it. It's a violation of God's order, this vigilante approach to this, this kill them all and let God sort them out approach. Just governments are restrained or should be restrained and must be held accountable to be restrained by laws and constitutions. But whether, what I want you to see this morning is whether God uses the government, old age, cancer, the weather, a plague of locusts. The point is that the life and death of every man, woman, and child is the domain of God alone. And the number of our days is at his discretion alone. Amen? Okay. Secondary. Oh, where did I go here? Secondary reason why God prohibits the slaying of our neighbor is simply because God is the God of the living. Come on now. Jesus said that of himself. God is the God of the living. While all of our days are undoubtedly numbered, I've mentioned that a couple of times now, and God justly will take a life when justice demands it or it serves his glorious purpose, we must never forget that he loves and prefers to give natural life and even more so, eternal life. His great act of creation was when he knelt in the dust and breathed into Adam's nostrils and he became a living soul. Time after time throughout the Old Testament especially, and some in the New, he granted children to women who were unable to conceive. He restored Old Testament, New Testament. He restored life to the dead. He healed diseases and extended people's lives. God is the God of the living. He is the God of life. Jesus famously stated in his mission, stated his mission rather, in John 10.10 when he said, I came that they might have what? That they might have life and have it more abundantly. The word life is connected to Jesus' work and message in the Gospel of John no fewer than 47 times. If this is true of Jesus, that he's the God of the living, a God who loves to impart life, 
it only follows that this commitment to life should be reflected in those that follow him. Anybody disagree with that? No? Rather than taking life, we should encourage it, defend it, promote it, celebrate it. This should be our attitude, toward, our attitude rather, towards both natural and spiritual life. Our preaching, even what I do and, and what you do at work and in your family, our preaching should never crush the lost and the wavering, but it should lead them to new realms, new depths of life through the faithful ministry of the Spirit of God through the church. Thirdly, God prohibits the taking of life because all human life bears his image. That's why God prohibits it. Even that verse we read where, where God says, you know, that, that he says, uh, if, if blood is shed by man, shall his blood be shed? He says, for you were created in the image of God. This is central to God's prohibition on murder. All human life bears the image of God. Every living soul carries within it this image. Even, even if it's tarnished by sin and depravity. We just talked about capital punishment. Did you know that every soul sitting on death row right now bears the image of God? Every single one of them still has value, still has great importance to the God that loves them and created them. If you'll grant me this illustration... Some of you may remember the 1991 hit by the Pirates of the Mississippi called Feed Jake. Anybody remember that song? Nobody remembers that song? Okay, I got a couple of you. Thank you. We'll go party after this. Um, Feed Jake was a great song. It's a classic, sad country song. I guarantee you, listen to it on the way home, pull it up on Spotify or something, you'll cry all the way home. Great, sad country song. And in the song, the singer who's narrating it, he reflects on both the injustice of the world as he sees it, and at the same time, the wonderful steadfastness of his dog, Jake, gets me every single time. In the second verse, he talks about the, the singer is narrating a song. He talks about the moral cesspool of the nation's inner cities. And yet he reminds his listeners that the lost souls wandering aimlessly in the streets of those cities aren't just empty phantom spirits. But they're real life people that someone actually loves. Every single one of them. I'm going to read the second verse for you. Should have had Caleb sing it, but here we go. Now Broadway's like a sewer, bums and hookers everywhere. Winos passed out on the sidewalk. Doesn't anybody care? Some say he's worthless. Just let him be. I, for one, would have to disagree, and so would their mamas. That's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. So think about that. The singer is thinking about bums and hookers and winos and, and seeing them in this terrible state of degradation. And he has this thought, at some point, at least, somebody loved them. That, that, that homeless guy that's holding the sign on the loop that you see and you try not to make eye contact with. Guess what? There might be a mama somewhere praying for him to find Jesus. For him to get 
free from his addictions. That's what I'm saying about the image of God born by every single person. Every single person. Believers in Jesus Christ should view every human, listen to me, no matter what their sins, no matter what their failures, no matter what their baggage, every human being should be viewed by believers in Jesus Christ as an image bearer of God himself. This would include, as I mentioned earlier, criminals, convicts, our political opponents, immigrants. There's a hot-button issue today, right? People involved in gross immorality, the poor, the unborn, the elderly. Christians are to view every living soul on earth in this This shared image bearing is not only just a way to view people. It's not a worldview. This shared image bearing is literally the basis of all human worth. It's why you are valuable. Humans don't have value because they're good. Because let me let you in. If you haven't been here more than one week, you're going to hear this a lot. We don't have value because we're good because, newsflash, none of us are good. You don't have value because you always make the right decisions because history has proven that we don't always make the right decisions. See, your worth comes solely from the fact that you have been crafted in the image of God the Father. That's what gives you value and worth. Isaiah 58 is a powerful chapter. Powerful chapter. So what's happened is the nation's in trouble, as they often were, the nation of Israel. And so many of the people in the nation are beginning to have long sessions of fasting and long sessions of prayer to try to to knock on God's door, get his attention, and get him to come help them. And so that's the setup. And so God is now, in Isaiah 58, he's, he's going to respond to this, this, hey, God, don't you see us? We're in trouble. We haven't eaten in a week because we want to get your attention. We're trying to impress you and get your attention. And this is God's response. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and didn't forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God responds, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. And oppress all your workers. Their fast was nullified by their treatment of other image bearers of God. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? 
is not this the fast that I choose? Listen, God's going to tell you how to get his attention, how to, how to fast in a way that pleases him. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? Is it not to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. God, in this passage, is calling the people out for their hypocrisy. In their fasting and prayer, they adopt an appearance of humility and crying out to God. But in their real daily lives, they're the same cruel, unjust people that they always were. Their appearance of drawing near to God has had zero effect on their hearts. Their darkened, darkened hearts. So God tells them that to please them and to be heard, they have to release the oppressed. They have to share their bread, shelter the homeless, cover the naked. And in his summation, in his, this passage, the Lord tells them, listen, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. What does he mean by that, your own flesh? What he's saying is that all of humanity is the same as us. As those who are fasting. Because we're all his creation. All of us image bearers. It doesn't matter where we are spiritually. Because the best of us. The very best of us. Are just formerly dead sinners. Who've been resurrected by the grace of God. The very worst among us. They're just those that haven't yet been awakened. And resurrected. So to turn a blind eye to their plight is to disregard the grace that was so freely given and lavished upon us. It's important to know that. And this actually brings me to my final point this morning. Although it's not, listen carefully, although it's not out of the realm of possibility, I'm probably, chances are better than not, that I'm not talking to anybody this morning, who has maliciously taken a human life at some point. Raise your hand if you robbed a liquor store last night and shot the clerk. Raise your hand so we know and call the cops. Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay. I didn't think so. Probably none of us in here have ever maliciously killed anybody. So why on earth could I not just skip past this and not preach the sixth commandment? Well, Jesus sheds tremendous light on that question for us all. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21, he says, you've heard that it was said of old, referring to the passage we read this morning, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. At that point, all of those right-leaning MAGA hat-wearing Jews were saying, yeah, if you murder, you're going to get in trouble. You're going you're to pay the price. But Jesus drops an absolute bombshell when he says this. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. I didn't touch him, God. Oh, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, listen carefully, whoever says, you fool, will be liable 
to the hell of fire. Instead of dealing with the simple act of murder or violence, Jesus, as the lone righteous giver and interpreter of the law, goes straight to the heart behind the offensive act. And this means that the one who has not taken the life of another is not off the hook. Jesus expands this principle of do no harm to the highest conceivable level. It includes not only homicide and personal injury, but anger and insults as well. Our honoring of the image of God in another person extends not only to our treatment of their physical person, but to the words we speak to them and the thoughts that we entertain about them. The penalty that God reserves for those who treat each other so poorly extends all the way to the risk of judgment in hell. Jesus' words, not mine. And this matters a lot. It matters a lot. Because the believer in this room right now who would never think to raise a gun or a knife to another person often willingly murders their spouse, their children, their extended family, their co-workers, their friends, in their hearts, with their mouths every day and in a thousand different ways ways we do it through petty insults and sarcasm that demeans the image of god in others we do it through our arrogance that demands our rights from our spouse instead of lovingly laying down our rights for their benefit and their flourishing like jesus did proverbs fifteen four says a gentle tongue is a tree of life a tree of life, like we talked about. But perverseness in it, perverseness in our tongue, breaks the spirit. This is a great reminder for us all. See, life is transferred best. The best delivery mechanism for life is this little thing right here. It's your tongue. The tongue can... Build up, and James says it can set a fire and destroy everything. Life is so well transferred and communicated through words, even more than actions sometimes. Death, however, is also transferred and communicated through the tongue. That's the real meaning of Proverbs 18:21: death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So my, the thing I want to implore you this morning is remember that when you're communicating with those who are close to you, those that you love. But the greater meaning of what Jesus said was that murder and violence don't begin with fists and weapons, and not even with words. Malice towards another begins right here in the heart. It happens right here in the heart. Earlier, I made a joke. It was just a joke. I was just, you know, loosening things up. I said, how many of you ever had someone you wanted to murder? Well, guess what? Every one of us, including yours truly, probably murdered plenty of people in our hearts. Maybe not. I'm not talking about you had the actual thought of taking their life, but Jesus' standard was hate your brother, curse your brother, insult them, demean them as a fool, murder. 
It begins in the heart. This is why we need, listen, some of you may feel condemned right now because you're remembering words. Maybe your wife or your husband has given you an elbow to the ribs because of something you said. But listen, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not shaking a finger at you and condemning you to hell because you've done this terrible crime and with this malice in your heart. I'm, I'm telling you this because this is why we need Jesus Christ to give us a new heart and to replace the dark, ugly one that we all inherited from Adam and Eve. The fights for our own desires at the expense of the very life of another. And that dark heart is the root of our problems in so many ways. Let me up the ante just one more time. It may surprise you to find out that this commandment against murder is not on any level theoretical. When the Bible says, you shall not murder, that is not to be imagined as something that somebody else better pay attention to. It may surprise you to find out, and I can prove this, that all of us stand before a holy God right now with blood on our hands, guilty, inescapably guilty, all of us, no exceptions. Let me give you the first basis for this. This is from the story of Jesus' own crucifixion. Matthew 27, verse 22, his trial is coming to a close, and Pilate says to the crowd, Then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified! And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified! So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You see to it yourselves. Watch. And all the people shouting so loudly answered Pilate, His blood be on us and on our children. And that is exactly where the blood guilt for Jesus' murder went on the people who were gathered there, and on every generation since them. When faced with putting Jesus to death or releasing him, the people chose to murder him, crying out, His blood be on us and on our children. We'll take responsibility for the death of the Son of God. In their sinfulness, they hated him, and they wouldn't be satisfied until his blood flowed out from his body. The sobering thing to realize And what I'm trying to get across to you today is that every one of us is every bit as guilty as those shouting at Pilate that day. And you may protest. You may stomp your foot and cross your hands and say, you may, you know, I would have. If I'd been there, Mark, I would have cried out in Jesus' defense. Let me remind you that Jesus' closest friends abandoned him. The ones that had seen miracles and resurrections and seen demons leave at the very command of his mouth split. Took off like a bunch of scared chickens. One of them actually betrayed him. One of them denied he even knew him three times. And you honestly and arrogantly think you would have done better? I also want you to realize exactly what it was that killed Jesus. Was it Roman spikes? Was it a whip? Was it the cruel treatment of the Jews? Mm -mm. 
what killed Jesus was bearing the sins of everyone who would believe in him. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ also suffered once for sins. He suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. So Peter makes it clear, even on his sermon on the day of Pentecost, that sinful human hearts were responsible for the murder of Jesus. He tells the assembled masses, you crucified Jesus and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. He's saying that to implicate both the Jews he's talking to and the Romans who killed him. But he also says that the Son of God was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. So what I'm trying to say to you is that although sin nailed Jesus to the cross, it was not, none of that was outside of the plan or the power of God. Not a single bit of it. As we read in Peter earlier, the plan was so that he might bring us to God. It was, it was so he was nailed to the cross for our sins so that he might destroy the power of sin in Jesus' body and remove its curse from all of us, allowing us to be reconciled to him. And to be clothed in a better righteousness than we could ever earn. Second Corinthians 5.21 is absolutely, you guys, I know in this church, you've heard me quote this a hundred times in five years. It's absolutely one of my favorite verses. The Bible says, for God, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. Yes, our Hands are stained with the blood of Jesus. And yet, for those of us who believe, we are not condemned by that fact. That blood redeems us. That blood atones for all of our sin. And it allows us to know genuine forgiveness. Genuine forgiveness. And if this were not true, this thought just occurred to me this week. We take the Lord's Supper every single week and... And it occurred to me that if this were not true, if, if the thought of God's plan and the death of Jesus were not true, then this time of communion would be the absolutely most horrifying, self-condemning, torturous thing that we could do in our services. Think about it. It'd be horrible. It'd be guilt-ridden reminder of our ultimate crime. This bread would represent the flesh that we in our sin heartlessly ripped from the body of Christ. The cup itself would mock us as our conscience afflicted us beyond our ability to bear it, knowing that we, you and I, killed the Lord of glory. But, but, that is not what we find when we come to the table, is it? Not at all what we find. See, when I come to the table and I see the elements that represent the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus, I remember that I've been forgiven. I remember that I'm not guilty, I'm forgiven. I find that because I've been forgiven, I have joyful fellowship with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And oh man, I find as a reminder, even though it's true all through the week, when I'm here and taking these elements, I I remember that His presence is here and it's here to heal me and to renew me into His likeness. And that makes coming to this table 
not at all a tragic reminder of my guilt and regret, but a glorious celebration of Christ's triumph in spite of my sin because of his great, great mercy. I rejoice, and I invite you to rejoice with me in the fact that the righteous one has died for the unrighteous, the giver of life for the murderers and contemptible thieves and adulterers. He died for us. And that now, this is the payoff. You've been invited to feast upon Christ and restored relationship. We now know by grace the deeper meaning of Jesus' words in John 6. Read them again with me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Wow, you're guilty. You killed Jesus. But, but there's not a death sentence on you. You've been told if you'll just eat this bread, you'll never die. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Just a few questions for you this morning. Do you need forgiveness? You don't have to raise your hand. Just Jesus is asking through me, do you need forgiveness this morning? Do you need to be forgiven? Are there things that are, even this morning, afflicting your conscience and disrupting your fellowship with a holy God? Do you need to be forgiven? Sins, regrets, baggage of the past that are robbing you of the peace the Bible promises, do you need to be forgiven. Come and feast. Table is spread. Jesus is inviting you. Do you need to be reconciled this morning? Are you here and, you know, maybe your family's into this whole Jesus thing, but you think it's a bunch of, you know, imaginary friend in the sky type stuff? And you know in your heart that you are so far away from God. And yet you also know that you are dangling over hell by a thread. And at any moment, your life could be required of you and you would face judgment. And I don't want to scare anybody into heaven because, A, it doesn't work. If I can scare you into heaven, someone else can scare you out of it. So That's not my point. My point is when you face God... You will give account for every time like this morning that you neglected His mercy, that you rejected His grace, and you ignored and disregarded His sacrifice on the cross. So this morning, I invite you, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Do you need reconciliation this morning? Some of you... Many days, many weeks, many months, many years ago, you gave your heart to Jesus. You, you made a commitment to follow the Lord. And 
and you have just returned to feast in the troughs of the world and you've just been robbed of joy and peace because of it. Do you need to be reconciled this morning? Jesus is waiting, arms open wide, to receive you back. He loves you and he's never forsaken you. You may think you've run far away. He's never forsaken you. Do you need to be reconciled this morning? Come and feast. Hey, is your heart this morning filled with worship and rejoicing? Are you just so thrilled with the fact that you are redeemed, that you've been saved, that Jesus Christ has taken all of your sins upon himself? Come and feast! Is your heart broken? Is it troubled? Is it sad? The Bible says that God is a God who binds up the brokenhearted. Do you need comfort this morning? Come and feast. What I'm trying to say is whatever your need, the answer to that is found in Christ alone. He said to eat, you'd never be hungry again. Drink and you'll never be thirsty again. If you're guilty, come on. And if you're forgiven and you know it, come on. So would you all stand with me? I'm going to ask the communion workers to come forward. And I just want to ask you this. I want to say to you that if in any of those categories that I just mentioned, maybe I said something that was just like an arrow flying from up here to to pierce your heart. I want to just ask you right now to just take a moment. We're still plenty early. I want you to just take a moment, bow your heads, right there alone by yourself, and I want you to let God deal with whatever you are. Some of you may be convicted because of the way that in your heart you've, you've murdered or injured others. The good thing is the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means we don't have to do penance. We just confess to Jesus and He makes us righteous. And so maybe you want to deal with that this morning. Maybe you have disregarded the poor, the homeless, the immigrant, the, the, you know, the criminal. Maybe you just disregarded and hated them in your heart. And I would invite you now to just repent of that and acknowledge that those people are the image of God. Maybe you're just away from God, like I said, and you need to come home. I invite you right now, right where you're at. You don't need me to take you through some song and dance. I want you to right now just invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Maybe you're just away from him because you've been calling him Lord but doing your own thing. I'm inviting you back. The Holy Spirit is inviting you back to put your trust in Jesus this morning. Just do it right there. Again, you don't need special words from me. I don't have a book of those kind of words. Just come back to Jesus. Let's take just about just a few seconds and let's just do that. Don't think about what I'm doing. Don't think about what Caleb's playing. Just, just deal with Jesus right now.
If you will let him, Jesus will set you free this morning. He will break chains. He will bust you out of prison. You came guilty. You can leave righteous. This idea of murdering with our words and our attitudes feel like the Holy Spirit is directing me to say right now, especially if it's like your spouse and you're standing right there with you, some of you before you come to this table need to just say, humble yourself and make some words of apology and repentance and just retract, you know, the heart that was so offensive to the one that God gave you to be by your side. Do it right now. Don't wait. My goodness. The Bible says to be reconciled before you come to the altar. And so this is an opportunity for you to do that right now. This is how we're healed. Let me extend that. There may have been someone in this church that you've had a, an issue with. Maybe you've talked about them behind their back or you've, or maybe you've just been rude to them to their face. Or maybe you've just harbored a terrible attitude. I want to invite you right now. It'll take guts, but it'll bring more freedom than anything you've ever done outside of putting your trust in Christ. I want to invite you to find that person right now. Go to them and ask for their forgiveness. Let the body of Christ be, be bound up and healed today. guarantee you this is way more important than whatever's going on at Furs Cafeteria right now. Come on. Some of you are wrestling with what I just said. The Holy Spirit will give you the boldness and the strength. You just got to step out and do it. thank you for the reconciliation you're working in your body today, for the reconciliation you're working in marriages, for the reconciliation you're working in souls that are coming to you to put their trust in you or renew their faith in you. God, strengthen us to follow hard after you, to be those who are the people of life, joy, to be the people of peace. To be people who speak blessings and not curses. God, enable us by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to do what we cannot alone do. 
We need your help, O Lord. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your cleansing. We thank you for the things that you are doing in our families, in our lives, in us as individuals, in our church. We thank you for all of that that you're doing right now because of the obedience of those who heard your voice today and responded. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. You are so good and so merciful. Lord, we're going to come to your table right now, and I I pray that we would do it with a heart of rejoicing, with a heart of thankfulness, with a heart of remembrance, with even a heart of hunger and thirst to be satisfied by only you as we remember your sacrifice. God, I pray that nobody would be disappointed by not experiencing your presence at this table and to know you in the breaking of the bread. Lord, I pray that you would just strongly reveal yourself to your body this morning. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. And Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And God, likewise, we give thanks for your broken body. Your broken body that makes us whole. Lord, you were murdered so that we could live. You were murdered for murderers, Lord God. And you have made them righteous. Thank you, Jesus. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, Father, thank you so much for the blood of your Son, Jesus, that washes every stain from our hearts. God, it doesn't really even just wash us. It makes us new, God. It doesn't just improve our old, nasty, stinking heart. It gives us a new heart. We thank you for the blood of Jesus, the blood of a perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And your church says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You are invited to the table.